Good morning, and welcome to service again. Uh, it's my pleasure to share the word of God with you as we continue to worship. Um, if you have your Bibles, we are continuing in our parables series. Um, will you please turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 10, and we'll be reading verses 25 through 37. It is Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And if you don't have your Bibles, the words will be shared on the screen with you. Join me as we go into the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You, go and do likewise. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I had the privilege of being born in L.A., but I actually grew up in Michigan. And in Michigan, the roads were known to be, and are still known to be, pretty bad, among the worst in America, with potholes and mudslides and all the stuff that's happening over there. And I remember from a young age seeing cars damaged from the road or just breaking down and pulled over to the side and wondering, should we stop? And from a young age, whenever I would ask my parents, should we stop or can we help them, they would always say, we don't know what we're doing with cars, so we would be of no help. And even when I started driving and I passed by these people who were broken down on the side of the road, I always asked myself, should I stop? But I would always continue driving past them and wish them the best of luck in my own heart. This all came to a head when, before I moved to California for full-time ministry, uh, my car overheated and broke down on the highway. It was about one in the morning, and I was stuck on the side of the road. It was dark, and I realized in that moment that that question of, should we stop, turned into, won't you please stop? And I realized in that moment that people don't stop. They look at you empathetically as they pass you by, if they're even looking in the window at all. Or some people actually even honked. I don't know why, but maybe it was encouragement, but they gave me a couple honks as they passed by, but I realized that as 30 minutes turned into an hour, turned into an hour and a half, people don't stop. It's about two in the morning, and I was about four or five miles from home, but I was on a back alleyway, uh, a very rural road, and I was about to get out just to start walking in the cold weather, and all of a sudden, a car passed me, 
And as it passed, the person didn't look at me in the window, but as he passed my car, all of a sudden I saw the brake lights slam on, and he pulled to the side of the road, and this guy got out of the car, and he ran to me, and I recognized that it was a familiar face. Now, my first response was not joy, but anger, because I was frustrated that what are you, this younger brother that I had in Michigan, doing out on the road at two in the morning? Where are you going? Who are you with? What were you doing? But then as his face came closer and as the familiarity got locked in, I was so happy to see him. I was so happy that I wasn't alone. I was so happy that we could fix the car. Uh, I was so happy that this was going to get easily, hopefully, uh, solved. And as we were talking, as we were both looking at the car, as we lifted up the hood, and neither of us knew what we were doing, but thankfully he had a AAA membership, so we were calling somebody. I looked at him and I said, you know, I've been sitting here for about an hour, hour and a half, and nobody stopped. Why did you stop? You didn't even look at me. And he said something kind of interesting. He said, I drove past you, and as I was passing you, I quickly glanced out the window, and when I saw your face and I realized it was you, I stopped. Because I knew it was you, I stopped. What a good guy. But why did he stop? He wasn't planning on it, but he stopped because he knew who I was. He recognized my face at two in the morning in distress. When we consider those that we help and those we engage in communal affection, those people that we like, those people that we say are a part of our lives, how are we choosing whom we love? The question isn't, are we to love? I think, especially as Christians, we know that the answer to that question is a resounding yes. But the question this morning is, who are we to love? How do we choose who we love? Or maybe more appropriately, the question today is, who is our neighbor? An expert of the law, a lawyer, stands up in our text to challenge Jesus and his knowledge in an effort to trip him up in the Old Testament law. And he asks him a question. He says, what must I do to get eternal life? So already we see that he's not really wanting to understand the heart and the love of God. He simply is asking, what must I do to be justified? Am I doing those things to get what I want, to get to where I want, which is eternal life? Jesus answered him, it's written in the law. What does it say? You're a lawyer, you should know. And the lawyer answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus answers him, good job, you are right, but it is not enough to merely know the law. Do this and you will live eternally. And beloved, this is where it should have ended. The lawyer should have been convicted. The watching crowd of fellow Jewish people should have gone away muttering under their breath, maybe we have something wrong here, but it doesn't end here. The the, the lawyer tried his best to stumble Jesus and he failed. The lawyer asked a follow-up question to try and key word today is, justify himself, to win, to trap Jesus and make himself appear to be greater than the one, the Son of God. And he asked Jesus this question, and who then is my neighbor? It implies that there are those then who are not neighbors. He's actually asking, who should I love according to the law, and who should I not love, or who do I not have to love? Then Jesus, so often as he does, he answers in a story. He says, a man, there's no identity, there's no ethnic background, there's no family connection. Jesus generalizes this figure on purpose. He says, 
Amen. A man is traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho, about 17 miles, and while traveling this primitive backcountry desert highway system, this lone traveler is attacked by robbers who beat him half to death, strip him naked, rob him, and leave him to die alone. This is an act of violence. It's in stark contrast to the love and compassion of God. This is an act of the world. Taking advantage of someone to benefit one's own self. Seeking the traveler or seeing the traveler as an enemy and a fool to be taken advantage of. If they had known this person as a relative or a person in their neighborhood or community, they would never have attacked him, stripped him naked, and beaten him and left him to die. But because they did not see this man as a neighbor, they attacked him and they all but murdered him. Now by chance, that's a great statement in verse 31, now by chance tells us that this was not a well-traveled road. It was sporadic. Not many people were on this road, so this man's chance of survival and being found were not great. But in verse 31, Jesus says, now by chance someone shows up. But it's not just someone, a priest shows up. Now let's remember who a priest is in that time. A priest is a descendant of Aaron, the tribe chosen and called by God to be his servants in the temple. They are models and examples of God's justice, love, and grace. A priest is holy, wise, and understanding. And this priest, seeing the beaten and dying man, the priest immediately crosses the road to the other side and continues on his journey. He ignored the man on the ground. Now, remember that this wasn't a five-lane highway system or the well-developed travel roads that we have today. The roads were small, narrow, and in close proximity. This was just a little more than the equivalent of literally stepping over the dying man and continuing on his own way. He could not be avoided. He could not pretend that he didn't notice him. He could not just look in the other direction. He was in close proximity, and he was stepping over this dying man to continue on his way. But wait, surely a holy priest would do this for a good reason, correct? If he's a priest, he would know the laws of purity. He would know that he wasn't allowed to touch a dead body. He could be dead. Or he, knew, he would know that he's not allowed to touch a bloodied person. And all these things combined would make him unclean. And if a priest was unclean, he could no longer carry out his priestly duties in the temple. He would be sidelines. He would be ineffective as what he was in the role of society in God's people. Maybe that's why the priest didn't help the poor traveler, even though he possibly wanted to so that he could remain clean to practice his priestly duties. Or maybe he was afraid of being attacked by the robbers himself. Or maybe he was tired from just finishing a service in the temple, and he wanted to conserve his energy to be fresh because he was on his way to do another set of rituals and sacrifices and services at the next temple. Maybe. But what does this have to do with loving the Lord your God with all your strength, soul, mind, heart, and loving your neighbor as yourself? And as a priest of God's people, wasn't loving compassion and mercy more important than any ritual or ceremony? But Jesus continues. He says, next, a Levi walks by. A Levi is a descendant of Levi. A Levite is a descendant of Levi, chosen to assist the priest and act as the authority who rule and oversee the temple life of Israel. They lead and rule the, the religious wing of God's people. They are proud, they're knowledgeable, and the supposed best of the people of God. 
But seeing the bloodied and beaten man dying on the roadside, the Levite himself also crosses over to the other side, meaning he steps over this bloodied and beaten and dying man, and he continues on his way. Surely he knows about the purity laws too. Knows that if he touches a dead, dying body or blood and all this other stuff, that he'll himself become unclean and that he can't do or fulfill his office roles and lead Israel and God's people. Or maybe he was tired after a long day of leading and being important and authoritative. Maybe he was late for a meeting. Or maybe caring for those in need in this specific capacity was too beneath his office. And he'd just hurry up and go to where he was going, but he would send someone less important and tell them there's a man dying on the road a couple miles back. Sure, maybe. But what does this have to do with loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind? And loving your neighbor as yourself? If a Levite was to lead and serve God's people and be an example of godly wisdom and generosity, what excuse does he have? What better way to lead God's people by serving them? Then a Samaritan walks by. Jesus' explicit use of this word Samaritan is emphatic or a big deal because he's talking to a group of Jews. To Jews, Samaritans were considered half-breeds, dogs, unworthy, hated, vilified, outsiders, challengers. They were the enemy. They were the unwanted neighbors. They were difficult. They were unliked, to put it mildly. Jews looked upon Samaritans in judgment and hatred and for generations, for generations, had chosen to justify their hatred-filled violence toward them. Samaritans were not the neighbors of the Jews. And yet Jesus says very emphatically, then a Samaritan walks by. And the Samaritan comes upon the beaten and broken body, dying on the roadside, and immediately he said he had compassion on him. What an interesting word Jesus uses. Jesus doesn't say, and then the Samaritan loved him, but Jesus says, that the Samaritan had compassion on this dying man. It's interesting that he uses that word compassion in the Greek because specifically that word compassion, mercy, pity, love, is the same word that describes how God himself loves his people in the New Testament. Matthew 20, Mark 1, Luke 7, and Luke 15, etc., etc., etc. So Jesus is equating the love and the compassion of the Samaritan directly with the love that God has for his people. And this is a powerful image because it's not talking about a Jewish person, a person of God's lineage and family. He's talking about a Samaritan. The Samaritan stops, he bends down, and he cleans the man's wounds with oil and wine and bandages his body with no regard for his own safety, his own cleanliness and timeliness. Not only that, but the Samaritan puts this dying man on his own donkey, and he takes him to an inn, and he continues to care for him. And the next day, the Samaritan pays the innkeeper at great cost to himself, two denarii, which is two days' wages, and tells him to watch over the hurt man and to continue to care for him. And whatever expenses, no matter how expensive it would get, the Samaritan man told the owner of the inn, I will return, and I will claim this man, and I will pay for all of your expenses." There's no calculation about the blood, the personal danger, the fact that they were of rival ethnic backgrounds, that their families and communities and neighborhoods hated each other. Who the broken and bloodied person was, what his travel plans were, or what it would cost him, the Samaritan simply loves his neighbor in compassion and mercy, exactly as Christ himself loves the suffering and the unlovable. 
Jesus concludes the story not by asking about love, which was already expected because the law that the lawyer stated in the beginning says that you should love God and love one another. But he closes the story by asking, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the lawyer has to respond that the good neighbor in the story that Jesus tells is not the priest, is not the Levite, is not the Jew, but it's the hated and the vilified Samaritan. And Jesus, nodding in agreement, commands the lawyer and all those listening, go and do likewise. And this is powerful because what he's saying to them is, go and be like the Samaritan, your enemy. Go and be like the one who in a twist was the only one obedient to the law of God, not the Levite, not the priest. Go and do likewise. What does this mean for us? What are some practical things we can reflect on and consider in the word of God? The first one is this. In the gospel, we have to understand that it is no longer about what we do, which is love, but to whom we extend and surround with the love of Christ. The twist is in who we are to love, or maybe more appropriately for today's text, who our neighbor is and who we see as our specific neighbors. In other words, our scope of who our neighbor is is challenged and redefined in the cross of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom on earth and in our hearts. To Israelites, the neighbor was simply another Jew or someone maybe in extreme circumstances, someone that they liked or that helped God's people. They had a relationship with this person or they could choose to engage with them. Anyone other than this, an ethnic connection or someone that aided the people of God or someone that they liked and would give a pass to, anyone other than this was considered an outsider, an alien, and an enemy. In fact, various sects and groups of Jews, like the Essenes, actually taught to love only those within the same community, even among Jews, who had the same beliefs and ethics and standards, and that they, would, that they were allowed to hate even fellow people who did not hold to the same knowledge and standards and traditions that they did. This included even fellow Jews if they were not part of the same belief system. In the face of this, the revolutionary and new standard that Jesus is calling us to is to love as he loves us without calculation, without condition, and without boundary. Jesus is pushing for us to be less worried about who our neighbor is and more concerned with actually being a good neighbor ourselves. Jesus is destroying old boundaries and redefining the ideals of community, of neighbor, of friendship, of love, and the grace of God. Galatians 3.28, Paul reminds the church, there is neither Jew or Gentile, neither slave or free, nor there is male or female, for you are all one in Christ. He continues in Colossians 3.1, Here in the body of Christ there are no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Beloved is Jesus Christ individually as children of God and also communally as the people of God, as all nations community church. Who do we see as our neighbor? Both outside the church and within the church, do we look upon each other in the compassion and the mercy and the love that the Samaritan shows in a mere reflection of the image of Christ? Who do we see as our neighbor? The neighbor has nothing to do with us specifically in our context. 
our feelings and mood, and it has everything to do with our identity as children of God. This word that Jesus uses in the Greek is plasion, neighbor is plasion, and it doesn't mean the person that you grew up next to or the person that looks kind of like you or the person that is familiar to you or the person that you feel comfortable with because you guys are a good personality fit or you have the good same standards or you guys get along. But this word for neighbor that Jesus uses in the Greek literally means the one next to you, the one near you. As Christians saved and called by the grace of God, our neighbor has nothing to do with where we live or who we know, who we like, which changes from moment to moment, who we are connected with by work or blood or school, and whatever discriminations or stereotypes that we have. Thus, your neighbor, the one near you or the one next to you, can be your enemy, a stranger, someone you don't like, someone awkward, someone you have difficult past relationships with. Someone that doesn't have your same world beliefs or someone that does not agree with us all the time. Our neighbor is the one that God has placed near us by his sovereignty and providence in order that as we believe in faith and as we obey daily after Christ, that we would be able to be a testimony of love and compassion and that through the brokenness of our lives, as we obey Christ, that they would experience and feel the love of God. In other words, if we can see them, hear them, engage with them, if we know them and their plight, if we can reach them, beloved, that is your neighbor. Regardless of ethnicity, popularity, comfort, social ties, your judgment of them, their performance in life, etc. This is how Christ came down to us and became our neighbor and loved us as his own in the flesh. In the gospel, this is what Christ calls us to do, to see people as he sees, and to love them as he loves. And yet we struggle with the lawyer's perspective, don't we? I do every day. I ask, what must a person do to be considered my neighbor versus what must I do in the gospel to be a good neighbor in obedience to Christ? This is how we operate. We consider love something to be earned by others or something that we practice based on our judgment of whether that person is deserving of our love, our attention, our generosity, or, most often than not, not deserving of it or not worthy of it. The gospel in Christ speaks differently. Love is not dependent on the other to earn it, especially on the gospel. In the gospel, we we know that this is impossible. Love is given because love must be expressed or given in order to actually be love. Love cannot be a fanciful idea or a a storebook of knowledge. It must be in action expressed as God actively pours out his love for us. And who we love is not up to us, but in the cross of Christ and the way that Jesus loves us, we are to love our neighbor, the one near us, generously, intentionally, even, and I would say especially, if it is difficult and at great cost to us. The expert of the law wanted to justify himself. It was about him, his opinion, his knowledge, his ability, his position. It wasn't about his love for God being expressed to others, his neighbors. It was about his own recognition and what he could do to get something, eternal life and justification and the valued looks of his peers. 
The lawyer wanted to be right in his knowledge, not his obedience, and to appear knowledgeable, wise, and upright. The labels of stature and position were more important than loving others in the light of how God sees his people and loves us. How do we seek to justify ourselves today and how well, and most of, more often than not, and how not well we love one another? How we struggle to do it, how we pick and choose whom to love. Sure, we know and we can probably say with our lips uh, a sentence wobbling back and forth between what the gospel is and what we are called to do as his children. But in our hearts, how do we seek to justify ourselves in our lives today in struggling to love our neighbors? How did I justify in my heart driving past those countless cars pulled over because their, their vehicles had broken down saying somebody else should go or somebody else will go? The final command is pretty simple and straightforward. Go and do likewise. This is less about knowledge and more about submission and obedience. We are able to do this in action, trusting that the Spirit will increase our faith and understanding of God as we actually walk after him in obedience. C.S. Lewis tells us only in the act of praise and worship can a person learn to believe in the goodness and greatness of God. What he's saying is only in, the act of, of, only in the act of faithful obedience can we actually grow in godliness. He is not a subject to be studied. He's not an object to be observed, but a king, savior, and lord to be obeyed. And in this, he continues to pour in and stretch and grow our knowledge and our love of him in all things. All nations, look through the story that Jesus tells is reminding us that the obedient act of loving one's neighbor, more importantly, a fellow child of God, must transcend all natural and human boundaries and definitions such as race, nationality, ethnicity, religion, socioeconomic status, education, gender, and condemnation. Our sin and our utter unworthiness of his love connect us all, but also the grace of our Heavenly Father connect us all as children of heaven. Our place in action to Christ is not to judge nor divide, but to be agents of renewal and reconciliation. Those who truly believe and recognize that we have been forgiven and loved much are eager to pass that on to others in the hope that they would come to salvation in Christ. If you can see them, hear them, and touch them, that is your neighbor to love. A couple of years before I began at All Nations, um, I was in Koreatown with my wife and mother-in-law, and they were going shopping, and it was crazy and busy, um, and I didn't want to go into the store, and I knew that they were going to take 45 minutes to an hour, so I told them that I would stay in the car. Um, at this time, I was kind of walking around looking at the bread shop to see if I wanted to get bread, which is outside of the store, and I was kind of looking around and just kind of staring at people. Uh, people observing is one of my very few hobbies that I have. And this Korean woman came up to me and called me brother in Korean and said, I come from, and I'm going to say it's one of the largest churches in L.A., and she said, praise be to God, I'm glad that you're here, and I believe that God has sent us together to be together in this moment to, to like serve the kingdom. And she spoke really fast, and I'm just trying to catch up. Um, and she said, we need to save Koreatown. 
And she said, we have to hold on to what is ours. We can't let those, she used a kind of a derogatory term for foreigners. We can't let those foreigners come into our Koreatown and to take over. We need to sign these petitions. Will you join us on our demonstration walks and, and protest against these forces from the outside coming in and taking over what is ours? We need to keep our neighborhoods ours. And I believe this would please and glorify God. As I was listening to her talk, I was getting more and more frustrated because this is just not ideal. And I pretended like I couldn't speak Korean and I, I said a couple of English words. I go, I'm sorry, I don't know. And, and I walked away and I just sat in the car and I was just frustrated and stewing in my just discomfort and distress. And I was just staring at this woman, not in hatred, just, just, it was just frustrating to see the message that they were giving out to everyone walking in and outside of the store. Everyone. She told me in this whole speech that she had given me that they had been out there since early morning, about five, six hours. As I was walking or watching the people in the car, I noticed that there was a, a Korean woman standing near this group from this church, and she looked very homeless, and she looked like she didn't have a lot going on. And I noticed that as passionately as this group was trying to get petition signers and to get behind the message of keeping Koreatown, Koreatown, and all this stuff, everybody that was being trapped to talk to them was going in and out of the store, ignoring this one homeless woman standing next to the door in obvious need of some kind of assistance. After about 25 more minutes, I walked out and gave her some money, and I kind of asked her, how long have you been here? Within earshot of this Korean lady that had talked to me, I said in Korean, how long have you been here? And she said, since the morning. And my curiosity got the better of me, and I asked her, have, has this group from this church given you anything or talked to you in the entire time that you've been standing next to them since this morning? And she says, they haven't even looked at me, and they haven't even talked to me in the entire time I've been here. Brothers and sisters, you and I know pages and pages upon, of these types of stories. We experience them, we are a part of them, we've observed them. But my question to us as we reflect on this word is, is this love? Is this glorifying to God? Is this what Jesus did? Is this what we are called to in the gospel? Because as, frustrated, as frustrating as it is to, to see this group trying to preserve Koreatown and, and preserve the heritage and, and, the, and, the, and the businesses and the well-being of, of Koreans and not yet even greet this Korean person who is homeless next to them or offer her any assistance, we are guilty of living in the same way as when it comes to our love and considering who our neighbor is. Christ considered us neighbors. Beloved, children of God, and in his righteousness and blood, he made us what we were not on our own, the worthy and redeemed people of heaven. And in turn, this is what we are called to, to be ministers of reconciliation, agents of renewal, not only to love, but to love as Christ loves, and to see as Christ sees and to love those that Christ loves in the unlovable, the unworthy, the broken, etc., as our beloved neighbors. Merely loving on our own terms is not commendable or something to be desired as godly or even true love as Christ models it. It is whom we love well that we glorify God. 
or whom we love as Christ loves, that we are obe- in that we are obedient to God? Do we love as the world models and defines or as Christ loves? In the way that we love or fail to love, are we trying to justify ourselves and our disobedience to the perfect model and example of Christ? Beloved of Jesus and all nations, community church, the final question I have to ask you is this. Who is our neighbor? I hope that this word continues to resonate and convict our hearts and that we would respond well and joy in all that we do, even in quarantine and lockdown. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we have not loved well and that in our efforts, our broken efforts to love, that we have picked and chose, we pick and choose um, whom, we ch- whom we want to extend our compassion, our friendliness, our encouragement, and whom we step over and ignore. In this disobedient act, Father, to make it worse, we try to justify ourselves. Father, would you lay us low in humility? In the Spirit, would you gently convict our hearts of our disobedience to you? And as we confess and repent and turn away from these sins, would you grant us opportunities to see with eyes of faith the people that you have placed in our lives in your sovereignty to see as our neighbors and to love as our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that you love with your own heart. Lord, that it would be said of us as your people that we would love generously and lavishly, not because we are good, but because our Father loves us generously and lavishly. And even in a time of quarantine and isolation and uncertainty, that we would not submit ourselves to the fears and uncertainties of this world, Lord, that we would obey and that we would trust and that we would see and love one another as neighbors, as fellow beloved children of God. Help us to be brave, Father. Help us to be courageous and help us to love well as you have loved us. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.